0: Let's turn our Bibles this morning to Psalm forty eight. Psalm that we began looking at last week. Last week we saw the first eight verses. And so this morning we're going to be focusing on verses nine to fourteen. Once again we're going to read the whole psalm together. Let's hear God's word, Psalm 48, beginning in verse 1. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray for his blessing. upon it. God, we come to you again in thanks that you have spoken through your word, that you have preserved the scriptures, that we could have them here with us today, that we can know you, we can know who you are, and we can know your will and how we might obey you. We know God, our own hearts and our minds, we are darkened in our understanding because of sin, because of the effect of the fall of this world and creation that is upon us and our bodies and our minds. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to enlighten our understanding and our minds. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who is the Lord, and the Spirit who guides us and gives us wisdom and insight, the spirit who illuminates the eyes of our hearts so that we can know your truth. We pray that you would give us your spirit through Jesus Christ right now during this time. The spirit would help us to learn your word, the spirit would work in our hearts to teach us how to apply it, how to live it out that we might live for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned last week that Psalm 48 is one of the songs of Zion, and that these are somewhat like patriotic songs for Israel, just like America has patriotic songs. And the Star-Spangled Banner is the most well-known, maybe the most famous of the patriotic songs of the United States. Uh, It became the national anthem in 1931. 1931. And uh, you probably know the story of how it was written. It was written by Francis Scott Key. And he was there watching a battle in the War of 1812. He was in Baltimore. as at Fort McHenry. And the British ships were bombing the forts there in Baltimore. And so he was there. And he sees the, the rockets red glaring. The bombs bursting in air. And he looks up. And he sees that on top of the fort, there is the flag. The flag still standing, the flag still waving. The flag, the the version of that flag that was waving was known as the Star Spangled Banner. And so he looked at that flag and it gave him inspiration. It encouraged him. And America eventually won that battle against the British there in Baltimore. They kept the fort. And so he was inspired to write that song that became our national anthem. He was looking at the flag that gave him that inspiration. And in a similar way, there, the people of Israel would look at Zion. They would look at their city that was like a fort to them. And they would see and they would remember how God would protect them over and over again. And they could look at it and they could be encouraged They could be inspired. And verse 9 says that it's when they would go into the temple, it's then they would look on that temple and they would be reminded of God's steadfast love. Just like the American flag can be a symbol that inspires and encourages, especially if someone was in the military today, they're going through their own battles. They can look, uh, look at the flag and they can remember how... Others before them have fought. In the same way, Israel could look at something like the temple and be reminded of the steadfast love of God, of how God had fought for them before. And that's the main point of the psalm. That's the main point of, of this, these last six verses that we're going to be looking at today. The command starts there in verse 12 to walk about Zion, to look. Look around and, and pay attention because as you look, you are meant to be encouraged. You're meant to be encouraged specifically of who God is and that He is our guide. That the great Jehovah is your guide and He will guide you forever. There's the application right there in this psalm. How, how are we to respond to what? We learn about in this psalm about Zion, the application for all of it is that we would look at Zion to be encouraged, to have confidence that God is our God, just like he was their God way back then. And So this is what we're going to look at today. The main idea of these last few verses in the psalms is that because God has kept Zion, He will keep us. So last week we saw what Zion was Uh, in the first three verses. We saw that Zion was a glorious city. And we're to think about the the glorious city that God dwells in and that God transformed and he made into a beautiful city. We saw that Zion was an indestructible fortress in verses 4 to 8. And the kings came and they tried to attack it. But no matter how hard they try, uh, over the years, you still see that God has established his city, Zion, forever. We're not going to talk too much about this today because we talked about it last week. But we as Christians can apply that to the church. The church of Christ has been established by God. It's where God makes his presence known He especially makes his presence known when his people gather together. We even read about that this morning in Ephesians 2, which calls the church the the new spiritual temple. So as we think about the temple here in this psalm, it points us forward to the church where God dwells. And so we're to look at Zion, look at the church, see how God has kept her, how God is among her, and that encourages us that God will be our guide forever. So this last six verses of the psalm is broken up into two parts, three verses each. That's what we're going to be looking at today. First, we see that Zion is the place of praise. Zion, the church, is the place of praise. Let's read verses 9 to 11 again. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, In the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Maybe you have heard of Zion National Park. It's a national park in Utah. Maybe you've been there. I've not been there, but it's a place that's a lot of deserts. It's got these giant rock formations, these giant cliffs. And uh, early in the 1900s, it was established as a national park with a different name, a Native American name. But then in those early 1900s, pioneers began to move to that part of Utah. And those pioneers began to call that park Zion, which led to the change of the name of the park. It seems like the name of Zion for that park came from the statement of one of those pioneers. And he said this, A man can worship God among these great cathedrals. Talking about the the park. Among these great cathedrals, as well as he can, in any man-made church. This is Zion. Well, the real Zion would have to disagree with that. The real Zion would beg to differ. Can a man worship God and nature in a national park just as well as any man-made church? Well, I mean, if you mean that the body of Christ has to gather in a building, okay, I could see that. But usually when people say that, they mean we can worship God among nature. Nature is inspiring. It shows us the greatness of God. And that's just as good as gathering with believers. In fact, some would say it's even better. It's more worshipful than singing a bunch of hymns with other people. But... That's not what the Bible says. No, nature, the national part, is not the true Zion. The church of Jesus Christ is Zion. The church is the place of praise. Verse 9 says, We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. This was the place, the temple, where they would go to worship God. They would go to be in the special presence of God. His glory would be in the temple in a unique way. In a special way. And we know that God is everywhere. That even Solomon when he dedicates the temple. says even the highest heavens cannot contain you. And yet God chose to bless a specific location. So that when the people came. They would receive the blessing of being in his presence. And they could worship him. It's not just that. It's not that you can only think about God. When you go to the temple. It's not the only place where you can think about the love of God, but it's a special place. God made the temple a special place, a symbol, a sign to point them to the love of God. Maybe you know Psalm 73, and you remember a man named Asaph. Asaph was really struggling with his beliefs about God. He was doubting God. He looked at the world around him. He saw that the wicked, the ungodly, everything seemed to be going right for them. They seemed to have a good life. And here is Asaph over here trying to love and follow God, and his life was just falling apart. Everything's going wrong for him. And he thought, well, this isn't fair. But in Psalm 73, he says, But then I went into the house of God, And there I discerned their end. Truly you have set them in slippery places. So what happened is that when he went into the temple, the the fog cleared for him. He saw what was real about the world. When you're you're away from the presence of God and you look at the world, it does seem as if the wicked, the ungodly, have everything go right for them. But then you enter the temple and you are reminded of what's true. The fog in your head clears. what's, What's the truth is that those ungodly people are headed for an eternal condemnation. And he says, but for me, God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. But when did he come to that conclusion? When he went to the temple of God. When he went to worship God. And so it is when we gather with the body of Christ in the local church that is Christ's. It's like the fog clears and we remember what is true and real about life. You can worship God in a sense By yourself. You should worship God continually every day. Love God. You can worship God with your family, but it's not the same as worshiping God in the church. It's not the same as gathering with the body of Christ. That is where God promises his special presence and his special blessing. And don't we want to be in the presence of God? It's like someone sitting in a chair surrounded by pictures of his kids and saying, I spend a lot of time with my kids because I look at their pictures all the time. Well, there's a big difference between looking at their pictures and actually being in their presence. Gathering with the church is being in the very presence of God. So it's in the midst of his temple that, specifically, this writer of the psalm thinks about the love of God. The steadfast love of God. See, it's the love of God that allows us to enter the presence of God. Because the justice of God should cast away and push away all sinners. Just like in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell and they sinned against God. God cast them out of his presence what right does any sinful human being have to try to enter back into the presence of god well it's because the love of god has made a way for sinners to come back into his presence the love of god the father sent the son into the world so that whoever believes in him would have eternal life the son of god came and took on flesh he lived a perfect life and he died as a curse, taking the substitute on, uh, taking the, the punishment for sinners on himself, as a substitute, a substitute in the place of sinners, for sinners, so that God could be both loving and just. His justice would fall upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God, so that Christ could pay for the sins of those who believe in Him. And God can show love to his children. Because they don't have to pay those sins themselves, but Christ pays for them. Even the ability to come into the presence of God should remind you of the steadfast love of God. And it's the steadfast love of God that we focus on so much when we worship there are many songs that we sing about the love of God. We pray because we love God and we know His love. We hear about His love as we listen to His word. And we see His love displayed in the ordinances that He's given us, like baptism and the Lord's Supper. Israel had these visual aids, just like Francis Scott Key looks at the flag. Israel looks at the city. Israel looks at the temple. And the temple is a visual aid that God loves us. And God wants to dwell among his people. The church of Jesus Christ has visual aids. Only two of them. But it's especially in the Lord's Supper that we see in a physical way that it's as if the, the cup and the bread, they remind us of the body and the blood of Christ that are given for us. So, when we worship, our minds are drawn to the love of God. Well, we come then to explain why. Why we come to worship God. It's because praise is appropriate for this God. And that's what we see in verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 says, As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. So praise is fitting for who God is, for his name. We have this comparison here. As so. As your name So your praise. But we don't have the what happens with the name. Uh, So let's think of a comparison. Uh, As all dogs are mammals, so Toto is a mammal. That's the kind of comparison that he's using here. So if I were to say to you, as all dogs, so Toto is a mammal. You'll know, you know what I'm implying, right? You know that I'm saying, as all dogs are mammals. And so that's the, the logic, the structure of verse 10. As God's name reaches to the ends of the earth, so his praise reaches to the ends of the earth. There's a parallel, parallel tracks here. God's name is going out to the ends of the earth. And in parallel to his name going out, his praise, Praise is going out in equal measures. Praise is inherent in who God is. Praise is inherent in the name of God. Now, the name of God isn't just the consonants that make up what you call God. But here, name is representing the character of God, the identity of God character of God is that within him he is the he is the most blessed god he is the glorious god and so within his very being there is this praiseworthiness and so as his character is proclaimed and goes out to all the nations those nations respond in praising him and then we see that his right hand is filled with righteousness God does not literally have a right hand. He is a spirit. But his right hand in the Bible is usually talking about his actions. So God's actions are filled with righteousness. In the Bible, it talks about him stretching out his hand to do something. And in the Bible, righteousness usually is talking also about his actions of salvation. He does what is right. And so he has to come and do something... When people are doing bad things, people are being oppressed, He comes and He saves them. So His righteousness is His acts of salvation. Everything that God does when He acts is filled with righteousness. He is saving His people. God is praiseworthy because God is the Savior. We see this in the Gospel of Christ. In the Gospel of Christ... God is proclaimed. His name goes out as the God who is Savior through Jesus Christ. And His name is going out to the ends of the earth. All nations. And we read in Revelation 4, what are all the nations doing? They praise Him. They respond in praise. We know that there will be a people from every tribe and tongue and nation that praise God in heaven. Because... As the gospel is proclaimed, it will go to every tribe and tongue and nation. And there will be a people, there will be someone from every tribe who will respond in praise because praise is fitting for who God is. And so, verse 11 says Mount Zion is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice. Uh, Daughters of Judah, there seems to be an idiom for villages. So it's not talking about the female children, but the villages of the rest of the nation of Judah. And so, again, you have this idea of praise going out. It starts in the city, and it goes out through the whole land, through the villages. And then it goes out to the ends of the earth. And so here in verse 11, we see this same point, that the people gather at the temple And they remember his steadfast love, the fog clears, but then they don't stay in the temple. They go out. They have to go home. And they go home glad, praising God because of the special presence that they've experienced at the temple. And the same is true for you and for me. You cannot be at church all day, every day. There is not 24-7 worship of God in the church. You can't be like Samuel and sleep in the temple. You can't even listen to sermons, even though we have the internet. You can't listen to sermons every minute of the day. There is work to do. And you are called to do work that brings glory to God. You work for His glory Many of us have families. We are to be involved with our families for the glory of God, providing for our families. All these things, all these things about life, they're not bad things. But they can distract us. They can bring the the fog as we live among the world and and we are reminded of the world and it's the flesh and the devil, all these temptations and struggles. That is why you need to go to Mount Zion. Go worship God the first day of the week. clears your mind so that the next six days, you can be glad. You can rejoice even as you struggle with all the mess of the world and of life. As uh, that hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, it says... Let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. The world will deride you. The world will pity you. And it's exhausting to be out there in the world. But we glory in his name. And it starts on the first day of the week. When we gather in the presence of God. So praise fits who God is. And Zion is the place of praise. And so the application of verses 9 to 11, you probably picked up on it by now, is that we need the church. We need to worship God in the church. We need to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. That command is there in Hebrews because it is the habit of some. And it's a temptation to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Together. But it's in the church where God's presence is made known in a special way. It's not in the national park, and it's not even on the live stream. The live stream is not a replacement for gathering with the people of God in the church. And so we are called to gather as the body of Christ. Well, we see that Zion is the place of praise. And then in the last three verses, we see that we're to meditate and proclaim Zion. Meditate on Zion. So, here in verses 12 and 13, here is the direct command. Talking to you and to me. Here's what we do. Verse 12, walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. That's the command. Now you probably know from reading Psalms that in poetry, in the Bible, they use a lot of repetition and they'll say things slightly differently to make their point. So Psalm 150, it says something like, Praise the Lord. And then it says, Praise the Lord with the lyre. Praise the Lord with the lute. Praise the Lord with the harp. And so it's saying the same thing over and over again, but different ways. It's trying to make a point. We're to praise the Lord. (laughs) And so 12 and 13 of this psalm, they're getting across the same idea. Kind of the same words, but different. Walk, go around, number, consider well, and go through. They're all getting at the same basic point. And I think the word that I would use to summarize that point is the word inspect. Inspect Zion. Pay careful attention to Zion. Now to inspect, you have to walk around, and you have to go through, and you have to number, you have to do all those things to inspect Zion. You know, at the restaurants, maybe some of you go into restaurants and you look at their health ratings. And the restaurants should have a sign that gives the rating that the health department has gone through. And the health department inspects the restaurant. When they inspect, if they're a good department, they don't open the door, look around. Oh, everything seems good. I'll give you a 98 and then walk away. No, they will walk into the restaurant. They will observe everything. They look at the floors. They look at the lobby. They'll go into the bathrooms. They'll go into the kitchen. They'll see how are the workers, how often do they change their gloves? How, how often are they uh, leaving stuff in the refrigerator or not putting stuff in the refrigerator? Are they cleaning the, the grills off every When they cook, all these things. And then they sit in the lobby, and they watch the employees again. How are the employees doing with the different safety protocols? It takes them hours as they sit there and look at every detail that they can. That's the idea of how we are to inspect Zion. Think carefully about Zion. Look at it, at every part. Consider well. Verse 13, as I mentioned last week, consider well is literally set your heart upon her ramparts. That's the idea of caring about it. You really care about it. You set your heart upon it, so you want to think about it. You want to understand it, understand how it works. If a woman, a wife, is decorating her dining room and kitchen, she really wants a cherry wood dining table. And husband goes on the internet, Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, and he says, look, $50 for this oak table. We need to get this. She says, No. I have my heart set on cherry. What does that mean? It means that she has a strong opinion. She has a strong preference about this. She has thought about her kitchen, she's researched wood, and she knows what wood is going to scratch or not scratch or whatever factors that she's considering. What wood is going to look good. It's going to serve the purpose that she wants for it to serve. So she sets her heart on it and she tries to understand it and study it and she thinks carefully about it. Set your heart on Zion. This is what God told Ezekiel when he was going to show him the temple in chapter 40, verse 4. uh, Right before he shows him all these details of the temple. He says, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I will show you. For you were brought here in order that I will show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. This is the temple of God. This is the place where God's presence is going to be. You don't get to make this up on your own, Ezekiel. You don't get to improvise and say what what kind of design you like. You don't get to change your mind because the contractors have a cheaper price on this type of wood. No, Ezekiel. Set your heart on what I show you. And look at all the details. Look at every measurement. I want every cubit right. I want... If I say it's gold, I want it to be gold. I want you to care about every detail. So, how does this apply to us? Well, if Zion is the church, then it means that we should think carefully and we should care about the church of Christ. And we should make sure that the church of Christ is guided by the word of God. Now, uh, I don't want to make it like some giant allegory here of how, you know, the walls of Zion are like this part of the church and there's this and that. Uh, but I do think we can kind of get a general idea and get general principles from this. If we're to care about how the church operates, well, we want to make sure that our church is based on the Bible and that we are inspecting the scriptures to be sure that our church is operating by the scriptures. We want to make sure that our church is built upon Christ as the cornerstone, that we are bringing glory to Christ and focusing on Christ. We have a confession of faith that we use, we say, part of it is to defend the truth. We defend the church. By having these confessions of faith that are clear and laid out. Here's what we believe and here's why we believe that it's biblical. We should care about that. We should know what it says. If you're a member of the church, you should know what the confession says. And you should use it when talking to others about why we believe what we believe. We should care about who becomes a citizen of Zion. We don't just let anyone become a member of a church because they want to become members, but we need to take care that those who are members are truly born again and truly are united with us. We should care about who leads the church. Who are those generals, you could say, if you want to make up this allegory? Who are the generals defending the church in the battles? We want to know who are the leaders. Uh, elders, deacons—should sh- churches have committees? No, no, they shouldn't. They're not in the Bible. Who are the leaders of the church? What should they be doing? I once, I, well, I once had somebody uh, after church ask me if I could find a peacock that was lost, and I was like, "Okay, well, are you asking me because I'm just a brother in Christ?" Well, it seemed like they were asking me because I was the pastor. The pastor was expected to go find their friend's lost peacocks. Where's that in the Bible? What are the responsibilities of those who lead the church? How do you know? Where do you get it from the Bible? Inspect Zion. Think carefully about these things. Now we inspect Zion not because we worship Zion, but because they point us to God. Sometimes people accuse people like us of worshiping the Bible. Bibliolatry, they say. We don't worship the Bible. We just love the Bible because it points us to God. They say that we worship the confession, we idolize a confession. We don't idolize confession. We just believe that it points us to the truth of the word of God. We should not worship Zion. We should worship the God of Zion. So, for those of you who are Christians, I think the average Christian looking for a church wants a sermon that they can learn something from and some friends some fellowship in the church. And really, people could join a church that believes all kinds of things. But if they find those two things, they'll stay at that church. But that's not what the Bible tells us to do. The Bible wants us to care about these things with how the church operates, what a church really believes about God. And so... To you, the Christian, that's the challenge. That you would take these things seriously. So why do we do all these things? Well, we see at the end of verse 13, this is that we may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. We care about the church We care about preserving the church and the truth of the church because it points us to God. And we want to pass down knowledge of this God to the next generation. God has been our guide. God has guided the church in the past. God has preserved the church in the past. And this God will continue to preserve us. When a church is faithful to the word of God, they do not need to worry about the results. God will take care of those results. God will preserve his church according to his plan. God is our guide forever. We focus on inspecting and desiring that our church, that Zion, would be guided by his word, God does the preserving. So we're to tell the next generation about God. When people want to pass down information, a lot of times people will make a museum. You guys go to museums. Some of you read all the plaques and all the displays and you read every word. Others of you just walk ahead and start to look at all the stuff. Those displays are there to pass down information. If you were to go to some castle, they would tell you how the castle withstood these different attacks, how the castle is built. That's the idea of Zion. Telling the next generation how Zion stood. And so for parents, this reminds us our responsibility to tell our children about Zion Teach them how the church works. Teach them the songs of Zion. Teach them about the God of Zion. We are to model for our children. Loving Zion. Loving the church. If you find reasons and excuses to not go to church, don't be surprised that your children will grow up and find reasons too. If you find the church boring... You make it look to your children like church is boring, don't be surprised when they grow up and think church is boring. We are to pass down to the next generation. But it's not just parents, anyone who's a Christian, you are called to help those who are younger in their faith. Tell them about the greatness of God and tell them about the church. We are to tell them, verse 14, that this is God. Our God forever and ever, and he will guide us forever. Some of you in your Bible, it might say there in that last line, he will guide us beyond death, or he will guide us unto death. I would personally go for the to death one. I think that's what it actually says. But I think they all mean the same thing. If God will guide us to death or beyond death, it's saying that God will guide us forever. He will guide us to the end. Death is the very end of our life here on this earth. God will guide us to the end. And of course, if you are a follower of Christ, you are with him in his presence forever. I love the scene, maybe my favorite scene in Pilgrim's Progress, at the end of that part where Christian is about to get to the city. But before he gets to the city, he has to cross the river. He has to cross the river that, uh, that symbolizes death. And as he crosses the river, the depth of the river depends upon the faith of the person. For some people, it's very shallow. Some people don't fear death. And Bunyan put that in the story to say that sometimes Christians do fear death. Christians can struggle with temptation even at that very hour of death. And so for Christian, he is walking through the river and the waters are starting to come up to his head and he is starting to drown. His friend, hopeful, encourages him and reminds him of the promises of God. And finally, Christian holds on to this promise. When you pass through the waters, they will not overwhelm you. And he says, I can feel the bottom. And so he crosses the river. And he's given the robes of white. And he's allowed entrance into the heavenly city. That's a picture of God being our guide forever, even until death. God and his promises will carry you through even across that river. And for the Christian, the worst thing that can happen is death. There's a great story in 2 Kings 7 of these lepers. And They're outside the city and there's a famine in the city and there are Syrians in a camp surrounding the city. And they say, if we go into the city, we're going to die because there's a famine. If we go to the Syrian camp, maybe they'll let us live. And then they say, or they might kill us. And if they kill us, we'll die. That's what they say. If they kill us, we die. So what? We're going to sit here and die? We go in the city and die. We go there, they kill us, we die. What's the worst that could happen? Well, let's let's go over there and see if they have food. It's the worst that could happen? Is that somebody kills you and die? You die. And if you're a Christian, Jesus says, do not fear those who can destroy the body. Fear the one who can destroy body and soul in hell. And so if you belong to Christ, you know you don't need to fear the one who will destroy your body and soul in hell. So you could fear death, But Jesus says, don't fear. It's the worst thing that could happen to you. And all it is is gain. All it is is entrance into the heavenly city. And all it is is as you pass through the river, God holds on and he guides you even till death. What's the worst that could happen? That God would be your guide, As Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, he is able to save you to the uttermost until the very end. And so the point of that last line in the psalm is that if God is going to guide you through the very worst, and death is the very worst, He'll guide you right now. What you're going through right now, He can guide you through that too. Because He'll guide you even until death. If He'll save you to the uttermost, He'll save you where you are now. So if you're feeling defeated, if you feel like you don't want to keep going, know that God is guiding you now because he will guide you forever. And how do you know all of these things? Because the psalm is saying, look at Zion. Look at how God has preserved Zion. That's how you know he will guide you unto death. So Christians, as you face the world, and you face the fog of the world, as you face the next six days, just like you've dealt with the last six days, as you face even death, walk about Zion. Consider her. Set your heart upon the church of Christ. Go to the temple and remember God's steadfast love and look at Zion. City of God. God has established her forever. So now you know God will guide you forever too. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your endless grace your mercy towards sinful people thank you god for drawing us here who are part of your church drawing us to yourself through jesus christ by your grace alone thank you for making us part of the city of zion this heavenly city that we can gather around your throne with the multitude. We pray, Lord, that you would save each one here who is not part of your city. Draw them to yourself. We pray that we would look to you as our guide. Thank you that you have all power, all knowledge, and that you are all good and love your people. All of these blessings are ours in Jesus Christ. Help us to have confidence in you. Help us to worship you in the praise that is fitting for your name. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.